Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me on this Nilestone episode, episode 15 of the show about the show. As always, my name is Devlin Clark, the creator and host of this podcast. This episode, just like every episode, is dedicated to the memory of my dad, who taught me to love and be passionate about baseball. Boy, do we have an episode for you tonight. Over the next hour, we are going to, myself, uh, mostly my guest, but I'll try to help a little too, my guest is going to teach you guys about the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, because I am so pleased and honored to have Negro League Baseball Museum President Bob Kendrick on with us tonight. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about the history of the Negro Leagues as well as some of the first um, some pre 1900 stuff. He's going to talk to us about how he became president of the of the uh, museum, where the museum's at, the history of it, and everything else that we can think of. So. It's going to be a fascinating hour of radio, and I am looking forward to it because I personally feel as a baseball fan that the Negro Leagues don't nearly get the respect that everybody um, or the baseball fans should give them because it is an integral part of both American and baseball history. With that being said, I am pleased and honored to bring on Negro League Baseball Museum President Bob Kendrick. Bob, how you doing tonight? Devlin, I'm doing good, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, man, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. I can't tell you how much this means to me. This is this is going to be a lot of fun. So talk to me a little bit. Let's start out. Um, for, for people who don't know about the Negro Leagues, the first professional game was actually played November 15th, 1859, between two two all-black teams. The Henson um, Baseball Club of Jamaica defeated the Unknowns of Weeksville, Brooklyn, 54-43. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. And, and, and as we know, black folks playing baseball uh, goes way back to really there's evidence uh, of us playing baseball even during slavery, uh, but certainly in an, in an organized fashion, we began playing after the Civil War, and of course there were a handful of black players who played what would be considered, I guess, Major League Baseball or certainly white professional baseball, with the most notable being Moses Fleetwood Walker, uh, who was of darker skin. Uh, Edward White right. certainly had played on a major league team, but Edward White, most folks thought that Edward White was was white. And, of course, it was later discovered that he was of mixed heritage. But Moses Fleetwood Walker was of darker skin, going back to the 18, about 1883, playing in Toledo. And Moses Fleetwood Walker, of course, being a barehanded catcher. And... Uh, as we know, this didn't last very long before guys <laughs> like Adrian, Adrian Cap Anson, and others. And, and of course, Cap Anson was a tremendous baseball player, enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so he basically led this effort that essentially created what we now consider to be a gentleman's agreement that would yep. ultimately ban blacks from playing on white professional teams. And really, that led for the next six decades until Jackie Robinson breaks baseball's self-imposed color barrier in 1947. And so black athletes needed a forum. They needed a way to showcase their world-class baseball ability uh, as well. And so that is what ultimately led us to the organized Negro Leagues. Now, there had been other failed attempts at creating a Negro Leagues, and but Rupe Foster got it right when he ended up here in Kansas City a week ago today, uh, you know, 1920, February 13, 1920. Just last week we celebrated what would have been the 98th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues. And so 
Rube led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into Kansas City, and they finally gave black baseball that organized structure that it so desperately needed. Uh, and, of course, that was with the formation of what became known as the Negro National League. Absolutely. And you talked about um, some of those some of those leagues that failed. I think probably the, the, the most obvious one is the National Colored Baseball League, which lasted a grand total of about two weeks. Yeah, yeah, it, it was tough. And, again, the idea wasn't new. It was just so difficult to try and pull it all together and, and to get the right people in place. And even Rube and his partner, uh, Frank Leland, who ultimately ended up splitting uh, because Leland, Leland had the idea to do this and was out trying to solicit shareholders to try and come together to to, to put together this league and and he was on he was on to something but unfortunately he passed away and then just it wasn't that much longer before Rube kind of took the took the bull by the horn and got it done but Rube was a master organizer. And and so he found the right players to get involved with this thing and ultimately created the Negro Leagues here in Kansas City, and then the, the Negro Leagues took off from that point. That was uh, – was Leland was – he was he the founder and owner of the Leland Giants, or was exactly. that a family member? Yeah, that was. And, okay. And Frank Leland was part of that, that group, and then ultimately he and Rube – had the Chicago, you know, uh, the Leland Giants and Rube spun off and, and created Chicago American Giants and actually won a court case so that he could actually maintain that Giants name. And so Rube was obviously very savvy, uh, a very shrewd businessman, very knowledgeable about the game of baseball. I think one of the greatest baseball minds this sport has ever seen. Rube Foster Absolutely. is vastly underrated. Uh, for his impact on our game. I'm not sure if there's anyone ever involved with this sport who have been any more influential in the, in the game of baseball than Rube Foster. He had been a great player himself in the early era of black baseball. And I think sometimes people lose sight that Rube was an outstanding pitcher. Of course, he earned his nickname Rube, when he beat the great major leaguer, Rube Waddell, Rube Rube Waddell. at that time was a youngster. Yeah, yeah. he beat the great, yeah. great major leaguer, Rube Waddell, as a youngster. And, and of course, that gave him the nickname Rube, and that name stuck, and he was Rube, Rube until the day he died. And, and, of course, he is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then, though, definitely, it was called a fadeaway. And Rue perfected that pitch so much so that it is well believed, because it's true, that John McGraw, the great manager, John McGraw, snuck mm-hmm. Rube Foster into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach, could teach Christy, Christy Matheson, Matheson how to do it, how to throw the yep. screwball. And Christy yep. Matheson threw that pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Rube Foster. But Foster was brilliant. He was so far ahead of his time, the way that he approached this game. Yeah, and you're you're absolutely right, Bob. And for those who don't know, you know, there's there's several, several great um books and, and things online that people can look out look at to find uh about on Rube Foster and his name was actually Andrew Rube Andrew. Foster. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but everybody knew him as Rube. That name, that, that name became iconic. <laughs> and, and as you know, Absolutely. in the Negro League, you had to have. They all had these great nicknames, and you know you got a great nickname when everybody thinks that your nickname is your real name. And so, <laughs> Rube, <laughs> Rube is one of Absolutely. those guys. Buck O'Neill is one of those guys. Satchel Page. Mm-hmm. If you tell people, if you tell people Satchel's name is Leroy, if you say Leroy Page, they say who? You know, because everybody right. thought that Satchel was really his name. But Satchel was right. one of those great iconic nicknames and so but uh yeah, you're right. Rube's real name was Andrew and, and and he was absolutely brilliant. And I can tell you that yes, you are correct, there may not be anybody that is more influential in the history of baseball than any of those three men you just listed. 
Andrew <laughs> Foster, John Jordan, Buck O'Neill, or Leroy Satchel Page. So the, the first actual all-black team, Bob, was the Cuban Giants in 1885. Tell me about them. Well, it was a tremendous con- group of, of talented baseball players. Again, you know, you got to remember at that time, you're just trying to take on all commerce. You're just trying to find a game any way that you could absolutely find a game. But, you know, obviously they, they, they were chock full of extremely talented players uh, and, and beat a lot of great teams in the process, you know, as they were going through this thing. But it, it was so challenging for those teams to find games. Um, it, it, and, and if they could find a game, the booking agents were taking all the money, and, and that's why I think it was so important to get this league structured. But, yeah, those early black teams were very talented. Absolutely. One one person that we would um, be remiss if we didn't mention is Octavius Cato, who a lot of people don't know about, but he was actually the um, promoter of the Pythian baseball team, baseball club, I'm sorry, which was actually formed by two cricket players, James Francis and Francis Wood, and they played their home games in Camden, New Jersey. Can you talk about Octavius Cato and the impact he made kind of being the first promoter? Well, and, and again, I, I think he, he stands out just before just for that reason. You can imagine you can imagine how challenging it was for a black man trying to 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 get people involved in, in this sport. And, and to find ways to get his teams games, but, uh, you know, particularly in that that racial area uh, and that our country was certainly embroiled in at that time. But, you know, he's very prolific from that standpoint. Uh, he was a very bright man to begin with because he had been an educator himself. So, you know, we're, again, we're talking about a guy who was really, really uh, intelligent. But, again, trying to organize black baseball at that time was about as challenging as it could get. Absolutely, absolutely. And it should be noted, too, um, when when we were talking earlier about Moses Fleetwood Walker, we would be also remiss if we didn't mention his brother, Welde, who also played for a time on the uh, on Toledo back in 1884 as well, and also Bud Fowler, who appeared in a handful of games with a uh, Chelsea, Massachusetts club in 1878. So back then when Octavius was promoting, obviously – um, you know, you mentioned that, that promoting is hard enough to do, and it's, it was even harder to do black then when you were, if you were an African-American. Black teams earn the bulk of their income playing white independent semi-pro teams. Yes. Yeah, and, and even through the formation of the Negro Leagues, they were able to make a lot of money playing against all commerce, local town teams, white semi-pro teams. But, again, it speaks to how, how haphazard this thing was prior to the formation of the Negro League. So, essentially, you were just taking on all commerce. You were trying to find a way in which you could, you know, get some games and earn some money as best as you could. And, and again, be able to showcase this great talent that was there. But, you know, yeah, it was very challenging. So they played a lot of white semi-pro teams, uh, as we know, through the, the world of heralded barnstorming, which the black baseball teams in particular were tremendous barnstormers. And, and this carried through all the way through the Negro Leagues. These towns were shut down to watch these guys play. And, and so mm-hmm. it was quite the phenomena. It, it really was. And, and so uh, – Barnstorming became a, a big part of the black baseball experience because, number one, it was one of the best ways for them to, to get multiple games, to get a number of games that they could play and they could do this as they were traveling, you know, at that time primarily on the rail. Um, and and so it was really interesting, the struggles and challenges that they did have just trying to get baseball games, and, and, and even more so get baseball games that they can get paid and then actually get paid. And so, right. yeah. Right. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so, 
you know, you, you you talked a little bit about Andrew Rube Foster, and one of the one of the things he did, obviously, he renamed his team the Chicago American Giants to probably uh-huh. to you know appeal to a larger fan base. But uh, you know, in 1910, J.L. Wilkinson started the All Nations Traveling yeah. Team, and that what what team did that act? eventually become, because that became a pretty popular baseball team in the Negro League. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they were pretty good. They were pretty good. They became yeah, our Kansas City Monarchs. Yeah, they were pretty good. <laughs> they became our Kansas City Monarchs. And, yeah, you're right, Wilkie had his all-nations team, which I like to refer to almost in, in the vein that it was a homogenous group of athletes that were made up of black, white, Native American, Asian, Hispanic baseball players. J.L. Wilkinson simply did not see color. And a lot of things that people don't realize, and probably many who are listening to the show, J.L. Wilkinson was a white man. And J.L. Wilkinson eventually became a charter member of the Negro Leagues with his Kansas City Monarch team, who basically came, you know, was really came out of his All Nations team. And Buck O'Neill would say of J.L. Wilkinson that he was the first white man he ever met who had no prejudice that Wilkinson didn't have a prejudice bone in his body. When there weren't enough hotel rooms to go around, they slept in the same bed together. His players absolutely adored him, and he treated them with great dignity and respect. And, of course, he would build, as you referenced, one of the greatest baseball franchises, not in just black baseball history, but we're talking about in the history of this sport. Yeah, I tell people Absolutely. all the time there are those, yeah there are those who say that the Kansas City Monarchs were the New York Yankees of the Negro Leagues, but there are other people who got the chance to see the Monarchs play who say that the New York Yankees were the Kansas City Monarchs of the Major Leagues. They were consistently good. They had one losing season Absolutely. in their almost forty year existence in the Negro Leagues, and then ultimately sent more wow. players to the major leagues than any other Negro League franchise. And so, yeah, Wilkinson made his entire living in black baseball. And, and so Wilkinson finally got in the Hall of Fame in 2006. God knows he should have been in well before then. I mean, with what yeah, he did totally. with building the Monarchs and then some of the other innovations that he brought to the game, uh, particularly night baseball, uh, Wilkinson should have been in well before 2006. Absolutely. Bob, let's talk for a few minutes for people who may not know who these next two names are. Kind of talk to me about, um, again, their kind of their impact on the Negro Leagues and, and the players and and things like that. Talk to me a little bit about Gus Greenlee and Cumberland Posey, both, again, just crucial, crucial figures in black baseball. Well, and, and you're absolutely right. I guess I'll start with Cum Posey, uh, Cumberland Posey, who, again, doesn't get nearly enough credit for what he was able to do and, and again, building one of the greatest franchises in, in baseball history as well. You know, his Pittsburgh, I mean, his Homestead Grays were incredible. And, mm-hmm. you know, and and he, you know, one, he was a great athlete himself, which I think sometimes people lose sight you know, Composey holds the distinction of being the only person enshrined in two sport, major sports Hall of Fame. He's both in the Basketball Hall of Fame as well as the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And certainly creating and building the great homestead grades. Again, one of the greatest baseball franchises not in just baseball in, in Negro League's history, but in baseball history and um, having played early on, but certainly being the architect of those great Grays teams. And then the guy that would become a, a little bit of a thorn in his side, Gus Greenlee, <laughs> who would eventually come on and build the great Pittsburgh Crawfords and then raid Composey's Homestead Grays of many of his star players to build his Pittsburgh Crawfords because <laughs> Gus Greenlee had a lot of money. Greenlee had a lot of oh, money, yeah. and, uh, and and many likened Greenlee to having been kind of the George Steinbrenner of the Negro Leagues. He was competitive. he So he didn't mind going out buying the, the finest talent that money could buy to build his Pittsburgh Crawfords team. But interesting that you had two of the great greatest baseball teams ever 
right there in that little small radius in within the Pittsburgh area. Homestead just outside of Pittsburgh, great Homestead Grays, and then the Pittsburgh Crawfords. And, of course, the Homestead Grays would eventually call D.C. home, and where they played for many years in Washington, D.C., in Griffith Stadium, and dominated there in the Negro Leagues for so many years. And, of course, all the great stars that came through both of those franchises uh it, it, it reads like a who's who if you follow the Negro Absolutely. League with so many Absolutely. Hall of Famers. Yeah. yeah, with so many Hall of Famers having called one of those teams home, or in some cases, in the likes of Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell and others, both of those teams <laughs> were home uh, because uh, they did a lot of those guys left the Grays to go play for the Pittsburgh Crawfords. Really, only Buck Leonard stayed consistent. He stayed. Buck Leonard did something that you just don't see done, and you didn't see done in the Negro League. He stayed with the Homestead Grays for the most part of his entire professional career, outside of going to Latin America to play. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and Buck was kind of the same way, too. You know, as a player for the Monarchs, he ended up having, I, I think I read it was like a 40-plus year career with the Kansas City Monarchs. Is that correct? It was a long-standing career. He was with the Monarchs from 1938, from 38 to 55. And, of course, okay. he left after the 55 season. And, you know, Buck began his career with the Memphis Red Sox in 1937. And J.L. Yeah. Wilkinson essentially orchestrated a trade to bring Buck to the Monarchs the very next year. And Double sure. Duty Ratcliffe is the guy that traded Buck to the Monarchs. And you know who took Buck's place with the, the Memphis Red Sox? I do not. Goose, Goose Tatum. Goose, Goose Tatum. Tatum, okay. The great, sure. great Harlem Globetrotter. And so that's Absolutely. how Kansas City yeah. gets Buck O'Neill. And, and for us, the rest is history. Buck was... Buck became a fixture here in Kansas City from 1938 until he finally passed away in 2006. And one of the most, one of this city's most beloved figures still today, uh, Buck O'Neill resonates so prominently in the eyes and minds of many in this city and, and, and certainly the work that we're doing at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to not only continue to perpetuate his memory, but also to celebrate the legacy of those who called the Negro Leagues home. And so, but yeah, Buck was a, a fixture here in Kansas City, spent the rest of his career before moving on to the major leagues as a scout and then ultimately the game's first African-American coach with the Chicago Cubs in 1962. Uh, but he forever called Kansas City home, uh, even when Chicago became home away from home uh, Kansas City remained Buck. Buck loved Kansas City, and Kansas City loved Buck O'Neill. Kansas City loved Buck, absolutely. Now you, one thing that you mentioned um, earlier, we talked about Gus Greenlee for a couple of minutes, and one of the, I think one of the the more brilliant ideas that he had is he was actually the creator of the East-West All-Star Game. Yeah. And the interesting yeah. thing about that was, Unlike the big leagues in which sports writers chose the players, black fans got to choose who played in got those games. And that Absolutely. game was held September 10th, 1933 at Comiskey Park in front of 20,000 people. What can you tell me yeah. about that game, Bob? Well, well, number one, Greenlee, again, it speaks to the innovativeness, the savviness Absolutely. of Gus Greenlee. He essentially saved the Negro Leagues after the Great Depression. Uh, and his creation of the East-West game, which was the Negro League's version of the All-Star game, debuted the same year as Major League Baseball's All-Star game. And it did, indeed, outdraw Major League Baseball. Now, they primarily held their All-Star game at Comiskey every year. And they would ultimately draw crowds of over 50,000 into Comiskey Park for the Negro League version of his own All-Star game. And so it did indeed outdraw Major League Baseball's All-Star game. And as Buck O'Neill would oftentimes say, you know, it ain't no coincidence that you put 5,000 people in Comiskey and black folks were coming from as far west as Los Angeles by train, as far south mm -hmm. as New Orleans by train, sure. as far east yeah. as, as New York 
converging on Chicago for what, in many respects, became the showcase event. Certainly one of the greatest sporting events in American sports history that most people know absolutely nothing about. And But in some ways, the All-Star game really was bigger than the Negro League World Series and because it was this tremendous collection of talent. And you're right. See, he had it already set up where the fans voted for their, the guys that they wanted to see play. Yep. And, and then Major League Baseball later came up with that notion of having the fans vote. But from the inception of the All-Star Game in the Negro Leagues, that's how it was set up. And I think because of that, it became this great gate attraction and, and some of the greatest talent in, in baseball history filled up some of those rosters uh, the, you know, from year to year, but it it, uh, it always fascinates me about those All Star games and uh, guys. In many instances, going the distance. You know, you didn't have the rotating pitches like you did. A lot of guys, you know, a lot of guys in some of those games went the distance in those All Star games. And mm-hmm. but it was a tremendous collection of talent. Uh, some of black baseball's finest talent competed in those games. Absolutely. Uh, moving forward a little bit, World War II happens, and a lot of um, back then many players over 30 were considered, quote, too old for service. Yep. However, um, you know, when when you look at players who did serve, it kind of reads the, like a who's who of of players. I mean, you know, everybody knows that, you know, Ted Williams and Bob Feller and Warren Spahn and guys like that all served from the major leagues, but here's a list of some of the players from the Negro Leagues who who served. Monty Irvin, Hall of Famer. Larry Doby, Hall of Famer. Leon Day, Ford Smith, Hank Thompson, Joe Green, Willard Brown, Buck O'Neill, Lyman Bostock, Lick Carlisle, and one other guy who was very, very important, Howard Easterling. Yeah. And, and the thing that, I again, it doesn't get the credence and the attention that it is due is the fact that there were a number of Negro League players who fought for this country. But, you know, you think about it, the irony of it, they were fighting for a country that wasn't fighting for them. So they were being asked to go fight against the same racism in another country that they were essentially asked to to accept here in this country. And yet they wanted to go fight. They absolutely wanted to go fight because, as Buck O'Neill would oftentimes tell me, we wanted to prove that we were American. They wanted to prove that they were as American as anyone, and there's no greater way uh, in the eyes of many than service to to this country. And yet when they came back home, they were still subjected to Jim Crow law. And and yet, uh, but the the thing that you touched on, is a lot of the superstar Negro League players were too old to serve. And so Negro League baseball really exploded during World War II because Mm -hmm. it was drawing both white and black fans. And so, you know, it wasn't just black fans enjoying this. A lot of white fans, and white fans had always gone to Negro League games, but in the 1940s you saw the number of white fans increase because, again, the Satchel Pages and the Cool Papa Bells and the Josh Gibsons were still playing here in the, in the States. And so you're seeing this, this tremendous talent on the field, uh, whereas those younger stars, the Monty Irvins, the Leon Days, guys like that who are Hall of Famers, yeah. they served. But, again, Gibson, Page, Bell, all these guys were still here in, in, in the States. But when I hear Buck O'Neill talk about his time in he, he he served in the navy. He served in Subic Bay, Subic Bay in the Philippines in, in the navy during World War II, and he talks about his time. And, and if you ever got to meet Buck O'Neill, Buck O'Neill was one of the most upbeat, positive individuals that I've ever made. He was the consummate glass half full guy, not half empty like a lot of people would see it. But the only time that I've really ever heard him a somewhat sullen was when he talked about his war experiences because those African-American soldiers came back to the United States and the POWs were treated better than they were. Yeah, the POWs are sitting in front of the bus. They relegated to the back of the bus. And, and yep. yet they had fought 
for this country so valiantly. But, again, it was all part of that process of trying to help people understand that they were American and that they were proud Americans. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we have on our radar screen to do is the story of black baseball and the military. Because you might remember the fact that Leon Day and – it was Leon Day and Monty Irvin that helped win a military baseball title during World War II. No, I'm sorry, Leon Day and Willard Brown helped win a military baseball title uh, there during World War II. Matter of fact, they beat a, uh, a team that had the great one of the great major leaguers on it. And, and so, yeah, this was a very talented – these guys were very talented, and a lot of them got a chance to play baseball while they were over-serving uh, and Willard Brown and Leon Day were incredible, both Hall of Famers, Larry Doby Hall of Famer, Monty Irvin Hall of Famer, uh, mm-hmm. who all served Absolutely. their country so valiantly. Absolutely. And, you know, Bob, one of the, one of the other things that I, I don't think a lot of people realize about that World War II era in Negro League Baseball is that while millions of black Americans were working in war cities, they were making good money and they packed – lead games in every city. In fact, business was so good that promoter Abe Saperstein, who many people might know, uh, he is famous for the Harlem Globetrotters, started a new circuit called the Negro Midwest League, which was similar to the Negro Southern League, and ended up revising the Negro World Series in 1942. So, you know, times were good back then for, uh, you know, for the country economically, at least for some black people, because Abe Saperstein is able to start a whole new league and a whole new circuit. Well, and, and black baseball, as I mentioned, was exploding on the scene around that time. We started to look at Absolutely. the apex of black baseball after Gus Greenley revived it. It is right around that same time, in the early 1940s, really all the way through about 46, even into 47. Now, after after Jackie Robinson takes field with Brooklyn, black baseball almost died almost instantly. The teams out mm-hmm. east really did die. The Midwestern-based teams were able to hold on and still be able to draw that black fan base. But essentially, once Robinson was signed and then Doby was signed, black fans shifted their focus naturally to the major leagues because they wanted to see how their great black stars were going to fare now that they had the opportunity. But, yeah, during that period in the 40s, black baseball was booming. Absolutely, and we, you know, we move a li- we move forward. Um, one of the, one of you talked about the gentleman's agreement earlier in the show, and that was really, really held in place at the time by Kennesaw Mountain Landis. He died in 1944. Happy Chandler was named his successor. Uh, Happy Chandler was open to integrating the game, and he said in his biography that he quote could not, in good conscience, tell black players that they couldn't play baseball with whites when they fought for their country and that was something you'd kind of you'd kind of touched on. Well, yeah, and I and I think if anything had if there were you if you're going to point to any single solitary event that led us down this path of integrating our sport, it would have been World War 2. For that for the exact reason that you mentioned, cuz the sentiment was these black soldiers are fighting for fighting for their country, they ought to be able to play baseball in this country. And, and and there's no question that that Chandler and Ricky kind of orchestrated this move, you know. And I think that Ricky knew that he had the full backing of the commissioner because that's the only way that this thing was ever going to happen. It wouldn't happen otherwise. Uh, the owners would not have voted for this, and and Ch- Chandler had the power to overturn, and, and that kind of Absolutely. gave us. You know, gave us the what was needed for them to go, and it was still an extremely bold move for for Branch Rickey to go out and try to sign Jackie Robinson, because again, as we know, there were other major league baseball owners who wanted to integrate well before Rickey makes the move to sign Robinson. Heck, you know, Clark Griffith there in in D.C is watching Buck Leonard do some amazing things, watching Josh Gibson hit balls in his ballpark where no mere mortal had ever hit them. And so he wanted to sign Leonard he wanted to sign Leonard and Gibson way back then. 
but he knew mm-hmm. he would be ostracized by his peers. So you, I guess at some point you say, is it really worth the risk? Is the reward worth the risk, even though he knew that both of those superstar players would make a tremendous impact on, on his team if he could have pulled it off? But the timing just wasn't right then. And so when Ricky and Chandler make the move, the timing was perfect because we had just come out of World War II. And so now, you know, I don't know if the pushback was going to be quite as severe as it would have been, you know, at the time when Griffith was thinking about wanting to make the move. But he wasn't alone. There were others. You know, these guys knew they could play. And and people saw them. Yeah, they knew that they could play. I think, you know, you hear oftentimes um, the question of whether or not these the, the guys in the Negro Leagues were good enough to play in the Major Leagues, man, that that to us is never even a real discussion. I, I think what we spend <laughs> our time on is trying to help right. people understand that there were two professional baseball leagues operating at the same time, one that gave the best white player an opportunity to showcase his world-class baseball playing abilities, and the other, the Negro Leagues, which did the exact same thing for the best black and Hispanic baseball player to showcase their world-class baseball playing abilities, but both were professional. The Negro Leagues weren't as well-financed as Major League Baseball, but the quality of play was just as good, some will say even better, and the caliber of athlete. You know, earlier this week I started, well, I guess it was on Sunday for the All-Star game, I started just doing some social media stuff on Twitter and talked about some of the Negro League players, the great Negro League players who were professional basketball players. And we started talking about, we talked about Goose Tatum earlier in the show. We talked about Cum Posey, who was a great basketball player. But then you talk about guys like George Crow. We talk about a guy like a Ted Strong. Ted Strong, six feet, seven inches tall, freakish athlete for the Kansas City Monarchs, played every position except for pitch and caught and could do everything, was a star for the Harlem Globetrotters. You know, this is the caliber of athlete that we're talking about that played in the Negro Leagues. Jackie Robinson's weakest sport was baseball. He's much better basketball, football, track athlete. Some say an even better tennis player. You know, Jackie Robinson led what would now be considered the Pac-12 in scoring. Jackie Robinson played for a integrated professional basketball team called the Los Angeles Red Devils, along with two other stars from the Negro League, Ziggy Marcel and George Crow. And so this is the kind of athlete that we were talking about that really played in the Negro Leagues, which is one of the reasons, Devlin, that you saw the pace of the game in the Negro Leagues being so fast and daring and aggressive. It's a different brand of baseball that attracted a lot of people who wanted to see something that was a little bit different than the major leagues. Absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. Now, one of the one of the more kind of I guess in, interesting things that a lot of people may not know is that in nineteen forty six, before the major leagues actually integrated, the Negro leagues integrated. And they signed a they signed a ball for the Cleveland Buckeyes signed a man named right. Eddie Clapp, who was the first yeah. black man to play in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, and, yeah, they signed Eddie Clapp. Yeah, and yeah, can you yeah. kind of can you, you kind of talk about that a little bit? I mean, that you well, know, it, I personally it, didn't know that. That that's interesting. Yeah, Eddie Clapp. Eddie Clapp had his own personal demons. Uh, that probably derailed his professional major league career or what could have been a major league career. But he did play briefly in the Negro Leagues. But, again, those same personal demons uh, had some real issues with alcohol, eventually caught up with him as well. But he did get an opportunity to play in the Negro Leagues there, as you touched upon with the Cleveland Buckeyes in 1946. Later on, after integration of Major League Baseball, Double Duty tried to bring in some white some white players too, because he thought that and uh, double duty. I, and when I said double duty, Ted Double Duty Radcliffe would try to bring right. in some white players because he thought that it might help him attract a white fan base. Obviously, it didn't. But yeah, Eddie Klepp was the first white guy that we know of to play 
with in the Negro Leagues. And but again, it speaks to the inclusive nature uh, of the Negro Leagues. They didn't really care what color you were. All they cared was can you play. And white players could have played in the Negro Leagues. But again, if you were good enough, you were white, you were good enough, you played in the major leagues. So you really didn't need the Negro Leagues. But in this case, Eddie Klepp is certainly, I think, more than just a footnote in black baseball history because he did play that season with the Cleveland Buckeyes. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things that, you know, being a baseball fan, I've learned that that I've learned about the Negro Leagues. And two of the ways that I really learned about the Negro Leagues, one was back in the 90s, they had a set of baseball cards from, uh, it was the Ted Williams collection. And he was, uh-huh. that was the first set of baseball cards where I remember learning about black players in the Negro Leagues. And then more so the Ken Burns Series baseball. He has he has an entire disc. I believe it's inning five dedicated to Shadow Ball. And for people who have never seen it, uh, for people who have never seen it, it, I highly highly recommend the whole series, but especially that. Can you kind of talk a little bit, Bob, about uh, about what Shadow Ball was? Well, you know, Ken Ken's work. Number one, he's one of the greatest filmmakers, I think, ever. And obviously, the, yeah. his his documentary on the history of baseball is, is just one of those things that if you are a fan of baseball and if you are a fan of history, you have to sit down and watch. It was also the thing, though, that catapulted my friend, the late great Buck O'Neill, into national stardom. America Absolutely. fell in love with Buck O'Neill. He stole the show. In Ken Burns' documentary, and, and America <laughs> oh, did indeed. Absolutely. Yeah, they fell in love with Buck. They fell in love with this very charming, gentle man who was telling these wonderful stories to baseball fans that they had not heard before. And Devlin, he did it with a twinkle in his eye and a smile that lit up the screen. And America fell in love with Buck O'Neill. He was 82 years young at that time, and yeah. That's what piqued the interest of a lot of people in the history of the Negro Leagues. It was also about the same time that the Negro Leagues Museum was starting to emerge as an, as an organization. And, and like I said, Buck was 82 years old. I'll never forget the headline in the Kansas City Star after uh, Buck's riveting performance in, in Ken's documentary. The headline <laughs> says, a, a star is born at 82. And when many of us are shutting it down, <laughs> Buck was moving into a whole other chapter uh, of stardom. Yeah. And, and, and God blessed him to live for Absolutely. another 12 years. And Absolutely. he was youthful enough and healthy enough to kind of enjoy this next level of celebrity status that he had achieved. And he, of course, was gallivanting all over the country, preaching the gospel <laughs> of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum here in Kansas City, to virtually any and everyone who would listen. And for me, I was fortunate enough to be there for the ride for many of those years. And so it's one of the things that I hold dear to my heart, the time that I got to spend with Buck O'Neill. And if you haven't seen the Ken Burns documentary, particularly the inning that is called Shadow Ball, you should absolutely check it out. Absolutely, absolutely. And you touched on just what a – I would even say he's an ambassador for not just Major League Baseball, but for the Negro Leagues as well. And it's, so it's only fitting that he is one of the 12 legends that has a bronze statue at the Field of Legends, Field which of legends. is located in your museum, along yeah. with Buck Leonard, along with Buck Leonard, Josh Gibson, Pop Lloyd, Judy Johnson, Ray Dandridge, Leon Day, James Cool Papa Bell, Oscar Charlton, Oscar Charleston, Satchel Page, Martin DeHigo, Rube Foster, Buck O'Neill. Wow. I mean, that's a who's who. That I mean, that team right there could be any any yeah. I think it could be any any team in the history of white baseball. Yeah, I take that team and feel pretty good about taking on all comers. Absolutely. 
Now, and and, and, yep. and the thing about it is we chose that group, and out of that collection that you named, only Buck is not in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. The other statues, including Rube Foster, are all enshrined in the Hall of Fame, the players who adorn the field, and they are actually cast in position as if they were playing a game. They do. They represent the first group of Negro Leaguers to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So that's how we chose our all-star team. And it is a great team with old Satchel on the mound. And we've got Martin DeEgo, (laughs) who a lot of people may not know that name, but as baseball fans, you should because he, you can make a legitimate case that Martin DeHigo could have been the greatest baseball player to ever play this game. What we know for certain is he was the most versatile to ever play the game of baseball, played all nine positions, played all nine of them well, holds the distinction of being enshrined into five different countries' baseball halls of fame. He's in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. Just a tremendous baseball player, but not a household name like Satchel and Cool and Josh. Sure. Yeah, and so so we Bob, I, I can't believe how fast the time's going by. We had about fifteen <laughs> minutes left. I could we could talk for another two hours easily, but I want you to give me a real give me give me a couple minutes on the uh, the Getty Lee collection because Getty Lee, yeah. I believe, is the is a singer for the band Rush, but he also happens to be a gigantic baseball fan. Can you talk about the donation he made to the museum? Well, for me, I think it's one of the most significant donations that we've ever gotten of memorabilia. And and Getty Lee, as you just mentioned to the audience, is the lead singer and bass guitarist for the legendary Hall of Fame Canadian rock group Rush. And he is a huge baseball fan. You can see Getty at Toronto Blue Jay games all the time. He's there keeping score. And unbeknownst to us, he is a huge sports memorabilia collector. And so Rush, several years ago, was playing a concert in Kansas City. Getty has a very good friend that lives in Kansas City who says, hey, man, I'm going to take you by to see the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, like most who come to the museum, he fell in love with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, after leaving a collection of single-signed Negro League player autograph baseballs come up in an auction, he decided that he would bid on them with the intent of donating them back to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, Devlin, he wins the bid. He wins the bid, and his office calls and says, Getty has a few baseballs he'd like to donate. How would you all like to have them? Well, naturally, we say yes, but we're thinking maybe, you know, three or four that he might have picked up somewhere turned out to be 200. He has donated an additional lot of 200, now giving the Negro Leagues Museum one of the largest collection of single-signed Negro League player autographed baseballs anywhere in the world, and is all due, as I like to say, to the benevolence of one Getty Lee, a white Canadian rocker. Who knew? Yeah, but it goes to show that this story has no boundaries. It has no limitations. It touches virtually everyone who experiences it. And in in those cases, you've got Hall of Famers, you got guys who were cup of coffee guys in the Negro Leagues, but they're all important to us. And I'll tell you now, 99.9% of the names that are on display in those cases that we, we showcase the Getty Lee collection, they're all dead. Yeah, it would have been difficult mm-hmm. to get their autographs even if we wanted them. And then you have novelty names like that one of the great country western singer. And, and a lot Absolutely. of people did not know that Charlie Pride played in the Negro Leagues. Charlie Pride was an outstanding pitcher in the Negro Leagues who made it into the New York Yankees organization before he hurt his arm. And it was after he hurt his arm that he fell back on a pioneering country western music career some 72 million albums sold later. We should all have a fallback career like Charlie Pride. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And you guys... You guys at the museum do just such great, great things, and I wish more people knew about the uh, about the Negro League Museum. But one thing when I was researching for our interview, Bob, that I didn't know is that you guys give away awards every year to current Major League players. We do. We do. 
They're called the Legacy Awards. And each year we honor the best Major League Baseball players, managers, and executives with awards named for Negro League legends. And so I think in doing so, at least I certainly hope, and we used to do a big banquet around these awards. We stopped doing the banquet because we introduced what we call the Hall of Game now, which is our big fundraising event where we honor former Major Leaguers who we believe played in the signature style and spirit of the Negro Leagues. But, yeah, each year we hand out legacy awards or we name recipients of legacy awards. So we've got the Cool Papa Bell Award for the leaders in the American and National League for stolen bases and for home runs in both leagues and batting average. We do the subjective, more subjective awards, manager of the year, executives of the year, uh, MVPs, that whole nine yards. The MVP award is named for Oscar Charleston. You mentioned him as being one of the statues on the field of legends. Buck O'Neill believed yeah. Oscar Charleston to be the greatest baseball player he ever saw. He, the, the old times in the Negro League say that the closest thing to Oscar Charleston would have been Willie Mays. That's frightening. Okay. How yeah. good yes. was Oscar Charleston if the closest yes. thing to him is Willie Mays? And the yeah. old timers say that he was Willie Mays before we ever knew who Willie Mays was. And Charleston was incredible. One of the Bucks says he never saw a center fielder who could go back on a ball the way Charleston could. Just had uncanny instincts. Just seemed to know where that ball was coming down off the crack of the bat. And he was strong, fast, aggressive. You know, once snatched the hood off of a Ku Klux Klansman and lived to tell about it. And so... <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, we do hand out those awards or we name uh, okay. major leaguers, current major leaguers. I think for us is one way to stay connected with the game, the way it's being played today. But it also helps, ele- it also helps people understand, I hope, just how good these guys were in the Negro Leagues. So when Bryce Harper or another contemporary receives the Oscar Charleston Award, people know how great – Harper is. They know how great Mike Trout is. Now, all of a sudden, maybe it will cause them to look up and find out who the heck is Oscar Charleston. And if they're getting an award that bears his name, he must have been pretty good. You know, or the Home Run Award is named for Josh Gibson, and people don't know that name. Well, perhaps that'll cause them to go take a look to learn more about Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell and Bullet Rogan, who we name our pitcher of the year award for or Hilton Smith uh, who gets the reliever of the year award named for him. These guys were tremendous baseball players. They all would have been stars in, in any league, quite frankly. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of my, uh, one of my personal favorite things about the um, episode that Ken Burns did on the Negro leagues, the shadow ball is a lot of the stories that Negro Leaguers tell, and you you touched on Buck. He's obviously, you know, he he tells some of the best stories. He told, he said that James Cool Papa Bell was so fast that he could shut the light off, grab, get under the covers, and pull the blankets (laughs) up before the room went dark. And that is actually a true story. Now, Buck never told how the story really happened, but it is a true story. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and, and sure. as the story goes, Cool and Satcher were teammates on the great 1935 Pittsburgh Crawfords. Now, many believe the 35 Crawfords to be the greatest baseball team ever assembled. Five future Hall of Famers playing in their prime. We talked about the Crawfords a little bit earlier when we were talking about Gus Greenlee. Well, they had Cool. Yep. They had Satchel. They had Judy Johnson. Mm-hmm. They had Oscar Charleston and a young Josh Gibson on the same team at the same time, dynamite team. Well, when they traveled, Cool and Satchel were roommates. So in this particular instance, old Cool gets to the hotel room before Satchel does. He turns on the light. There's a delay before the light comes on. He flips the light switch off. There's a delay before the light goes on. Old Cool says, "Uh uh-huh. When Satchel gets to the room, Cool is waiting on him. Satchel gets in bed, Cool gets up. Roomy, I'm so fast, I can flip this light switch off, run over, hop in bed, cover up before the room gets dark. And Satchel's like, Cool, you fast, but you ain't that fast. And Cool Papa Bell bet his meal money. And Satchel took the bait. 
and in one of the greatest sports pranks of all time because that light <laughs> had a shortage in it. Cool was able to flip that light switch off, run over, hop in bed, cover up before the room went completely dark. Satchel was so outdone that he just always told folks that Cool was that fast. Absolutely. And, and one of the beautiful things about that, about that, um, about that thing that Ken Burns did was, like I mentioned, the stories, and you just shared an absolute great one. We have less than five minutes left, Bob, but I, I really, I want you to tell, um, kind of the, I want you to kind of give some background on the story that I'm about to share. I, so in that disc, uh, Buck O'Neill's talking about a trip that he took to South Carolina. Yeah. With Satchel Page and and for people who have never seen that disc, most of the stories on there are funny and poignant and all this kind of stuff. But this story is actually um, it, it it's kind of it kind of shows you a different side to Satchel Page. Can you talk oh, about that? Yeah, because most people saw Satchel with the flair and the charisma. But as Buck would always talk about, Satchel was a lot deeper thinker than probably people gave him credit for. And you referenced the fact that they were in South Carolina. Drum Island is where they landed the slaves. And so Buck and Satchel are at a warehouse there uh, on Drum Island. And, and Satchel said, and, and of course, Satchel called Buck Nancy. And he looks at Buck and he says, Nancy, feels like I've been here before. And, and Devlin, what he was alluding to, as Buck O'Neill would say, the very fact that his grandmother or grandfather could have been auctioned off right there where they were standing. And, uh, yeah, he, he was a, a lot deeper thinker than many people gave him credit for being because we get so lost, and rightfully so, in the charisma and the showmanship and the tremendous talent as a pitcher that we lose sight of the intellectual side of a satchel page, although he never had a formal education. He was wise beyond his years, and and there are some life lessons that come with just living, and satchel lived a long, a long wonderful life and uh, I think learned so much from those experiences. But, yeah, the fact that his ancestors could have been auctioned off in that very spot that they were were standing in, you know, it kind of gave both of them chills, you know, to think about their legacy and the continuation of their legacies. Absolutely, we had about two and a half minutes left. Uh, one of the, one of the, one of the guys that we we didn't touch too much on. We you mentioned them earlier, but one of the one of the funnier stories in that Ken Burns episode about the uh, Negro Leagues was told by Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. He talks he talks about. <laughs> He talks about traveling with Satchel Page, and Satchel's driving about 80 miles an hour down the road, <laughs> and he gets pulled over, and the cop says, "The cop says, what, who are you?'" And he says, "Well, I'm Satchel Page." And he says, "Well, by you being Satchel Page, that's a twenty-dollar fine." And Double Duty says, "I got out of the car, and I wouldn't ride with him anymore." He says, "I yeah, waited for the team president. I wouldn't ride with him anymore." Satchel liked fast cars, and he drove them fast. And another funny story, they're driving, Satchel's driving through a little small Kansas town, and he gets pulled over as he customarily did for speeding, goes before the judge. The judge says, well, Mr. Page, your, your fine is $50. And so Satchel hands the judge $100. And the judge says, well, Mr. Page, your fine is only $50. Satchel says, I'm coming back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> You know what we've uh, I've I've taken up enough of your uh, enough of your time here, Bob. I can't tell you how great the last hour has been for me. I I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you coming on. I want to give you the last minute here to kind of let people know how they can contact the Negro League Baseball Museum in it and contact you if they have any questions or if they have any um, or if they want a tour or anything like that. Oh, absolutely. And, and we do encourage you, if you have not come out to Kansas City to experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, you absolutely should do so. It is a wonderful piece of baseball and Americana. We're so proud of the work that we're doing to preserve this history and to celebrate it and to educate people about it. Uh, if you're so inclined, you can get more information on us on the World Wide Web at nlbm.com. And so also, if you're so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter, 
I'm at NLBM Prez, P-R-E-Z, on, on Twitter, and we also have our Facebook page as well. Um, and, and there are a lot of great things happening at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So come to Kansas City, enjoy the world's greatest barbecue, and take on what I believe <laughs> to be the best baseball history museum anywhere in the world, and I'm biased, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. All right. Well, that is a that is an absolutely fantastic way to end the episode, Bob. I cannot thank you enough for giving me an hour of your time and for educating me and hopefully all of our listeners on just how important the Negro Leagues and some of the pioneers were. Thank you so very much and I hope uh, I hope it all I hope everything works out for you. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and we look forward to seeing you and KC sometime in the very near future. I will. I'll take you up on that lunch offer, and we'll hit up the museum. All right. You got a deal. All right. Perfect. Thanks, Bob. Take care. You. All right. You too. Bye now. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. So that was Bob Kendrick. He is the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum. I could, t- I could have done another two hours with Bob. He is fantastic and amazing, and some of the stories he has to tell are just crazy. If you don't know anything about the Negro League Baseball Museum, I definitely recommend looking it up. Also, find a copy of Buck O'Neill's autobiography. It's, it's a great read. Guys, ladies, gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for listening for the last hour. I also had two new episodes that put out today. Everything can be found on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter, Devlin under slash Clark, and you can find Bob Kendrick, NLBM president at NLBM prez, P-R-E-Z, on Twitter. Follow him. Find him. He's great. He's super interactive. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys again down the road.